Brewers are true listeners. If you'd like to add me on Instagram and Facebook, it is at the Rumors Are True Cast. If you'd like to like and subscribe, feel free. You know what to do. If not, no matter what, I really appreciate you listening. So again, if you'd like to add me, you know the drill. If you'd like to subscribe, you know it even better. Thank you, guys. Welcome, it's Jeremy Allen Gould. I'm coming to you today to confirm between God and of man that in fact, the rumors that you have all heard are true. I started this podcast because I freaking love music. I was privileged enough to book amazing artists and bands in the past, and I was lucky enough to stay in touch with many of them to this day. This is a place to hear their stories. Thank you so much for riding along on this journey, and I hope you enjoy what you hear. With that said, the rumors are definitely true. Thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of the Rumors Are True podcast. My name is Jeremy, and today I welcome the legend Chris Colbert. You know Chris from the bands Fluffy, Breakfast with Amy, Duralux, 
and about a million records that you and I both love. What an awesome conversation with Chris. So cool and so kind of him to be on this podcast. I'm deeply honored. So I hope you enjoy this latest episode with Chris Colbert. Chris, what is up, my friend? Thank you so much for coming on my podcast, man. I really appreciate it. Oh, happy to be here. Awesome, man. Participant. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much. Tell me, what's going on in your life currently? What's what's going on in your world? Um, I'm currently sitting in National Freedom Studio in Cottage Grove, Oregon. Um, and once I'm done with this, I am going to start mastering a new Walter Martin record. Um, my day job is mastering and then mixing and then maybe once a month or so I record a band. That's cool. And, um, it's like my girlfriend says, I work really, really hard to not have a job. (laughs) But at least you, uh, have found your niche, found your, your thing to to be able to, you know, obviously be creative and do what you were born to do, man. I think that's cool. Oh, I'm just, I, I, I'm, can't believe I, you know. This is my 40th year Wow! music biz, and it's like, it's oddly working. It's like, yeah. wow. Love that, man. Clerical error. <laughs> Sweet, man. Well, let's talk about growing up for you. Um, how kind of music kind of came into your life? Um, maybe some influences, some bands, records that uh, you kind of gravitated to and, and kind of put you on, on the trajectory that you went on. Um, I, I grew up in Southern California and like the Whittier, Pico, Rivera area, which is like east of Los Angeles, um, a little bit of a hood. Um, so I grew up, you know, my parents were like children of the 60s. So I listened to a lot of, you know, 45s, my mom's collection. Mm-hmm. And the neighborhood I grew up in being predominantly Hispanic, like the, what they called the oldies was hugely popular and you hear like you know 50s rock and roll and doo-wop blasting out of like low riders <laughs> um, and that sticks with you so yeah. i you know i still love like the classics you know chuck berry little richard stuff like that is just absolutely foundational and you know that that is the the form of what we all do who do rock music is just like it's directly that is the source and I still love it. Yeah. Um and then you know I was in high school in the eighties. I graduated from eighty four so and that was through uh peak punk rock in Los Angeles. And I was very fortunate to get to meet and hang out with and go see bands like the Adolescents and Black Flag and DI and X. And a lot of the psychedelic bands like Dream Syndicate and uh, Opal, which became Massey Star. Wow. I mean, Los Angeles had great radio stations. It was musically, you couldn't be a more fortunate location to sure to have exposure to so much. It's like you could go to like the Thai lounge and get cool cocktails and watch like Thai psychedelic bands. <laughs> That's you know? awesome. And then there's a you know large Vietnamese culture and their music which is very influenced by like traditional french pop Mm. Uh, also awesome and i got to record a little bit of that in my first studio i worked at that's awesome yeah um and then just you know between the the, going to be able to see bands all the time because everyone played los angeles 
um, I had great exposure to a lot of uh, European bands that I think people in the Midwest would have missed out on. I mean, I've seen, you know, Echo and the Bunnymen like 12 times. Wow. Um, hard to do that in Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's awesome. What, uh, what, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. You, you know, you kind of... into like, you know, buying a guitar and being in bands and that led to being in a studio and that just kind of clicked for me. The studio environment seemed really inviting. And also in Los Angeles at the time, backyard party shows like keggers where you charge, you know, $3 at the front gate um, to play a backyard party. I had a little sound system, you know, speakers on stands that I'd get paid, you know, $75 a night to do sound for these <laughs> shows that were super fun. And that's how I kind of bumbled into being a sound guy. That's awesome. That's really cool. What's, um, what's, uh, uh, you kind of mentioned some of the oldies and, uh, was there any, uh, like particular records, um, in that time frame that you just, um, I don't know that you still, I guess, crush today? Um, oh, I mean, I still like, you know, Sun Studios era Johnny Cash. Nice. I mean, can't deny that that's, you know, still great. Absolutely. I, you know, Chuck Berry and Little Richard, I listen to a lot. Bo Diddley, I listen to a lot and is very, you know, top three guitar, you know, player influences. That's awesome. That's cool. Well, let me uh, <clears throat> talk about, you obviously, you get into music, you're starting to do some sounds, starting to, you know, work these shows, like you were saying. Is that kind of what led you to starting some bands? Um, I, I guess, you know, kind of, how did that kind of come to? And and uh, was Fluffy and Breakfast with Amy your first bands, or did you have any bands previous to that? I mean, I, was, I played other people's bands in high school, like, you know, punk rock bands that really you know, never went past playing backyard parties. And then growing up in the Southern California Calvary Chapel movement, I was exposed to a lot of what became the classic Christian music, you know, Daniel Amos, uh, yeah. Phil, Larry Norman, I, you know, that, that would I'd go to those shows. And so like, and growing up in a very evangelical fundamentalist household, it's just, I met those people who eventually, you know, were they in those bands or took me to see those bands. And, yeah. And then my mom would let us go to like the amusement parks, the amusement park called Knott's Berry Farm. Yeah, I remember, I remember rides, about that. They would have their Christian music nights and I would be allowed to go to that and um, meet a lot of people there. You know, most of the music was just horrible. <laughs> but a lot of the people were really nice and then being met other musicians. And then as we hit college age and we were like, well, we don't want to participate in this religious culture, but we're from it. Um, sure. And we have really, you know, juvenile sense of humor. Let's, you know, start, you know, like breakfast with Amy was a band that for the first year had no steady lineup. Mm our song we would just go up on stage and make stuff up wow um because there's proficient you know players and it was just fun to just like you know 
let's play last train to Clarksville five times in a row. And call it, <laughs> you know, annoying. Yeah. You know, you know, play in a church and get, you know, just have a youth pastor tell us, you know, that we'll never come back. And we're just like, yeah, cool. No, yeah. <laughs> um, and Amazing. then Mike not wanted to start Blonde Vinyl. You know, he wanted to do 10 records as his initial, like, release, his launch. Yeah. And he asked me uh, if I could record 10 records in one month for $10,000. And I was like, all I heard was $10,000. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, 1988 or whatever that was, it was like, yeah. like a lot of money. Yes. And then, um, so we did that. And then he needed uh, 10 records. And that's how Fluffy came into being a recording project is because he needed a 10th record and it's like we could write and record a punk rock record that was 28 minutes long in a weekend amazing and amazing. then oddly enough we would get asked to go do shows which was once again people not grasping the situation or listening to the language and then we'd be up there opening for like the crucified but we'd you know all be on shrooms or something <laughs> The fact that people had a religious experience from that is pleasantly confusing. Yes, I would say so, too. That's hilarious. It's incredible. I remember discovering it personally. Um, you know, I was kind of getting the whole punk rock world and seeing, you know, in Heaven's Metal Magazine or HM, you know, I'd see like, uh, you know, Fluffy or Breakfast and Amy. And it was like, oh, this is something I've got to get, you know, kind of that thing. And I loved it. You know, I, you know, I was young, so I probably didn't probably went way over my head. But I personally no, it, just it, it, no, it's not over anyone's head. It's just so fucking stupid. <laughs> Which was kind of the point. Is just it's there was the void of content, you know. But like Fluffy, that was like solid punk rock musically. Yeah, right? that's what exactly. Just, how vacuous can we make this? Yeah, absolutely. You know? but I love that. I love that. I love that you got to do something like that. And I know, you know, looking back on it you know, it's, you're saying it's kind of more tongue in cheek and more, you know, uh, of, of a, a joke per se. Um, but it's cool that, you know, it, it obviously influenced a lot of people, a lot of bands and, and, you know, artists that, you know, probably, um, you know, just, you know, just were influenced, I guess I should say by it. So that's, I mean, either way, I think that's cool. I think that's yeah, awesome. I mean, it was, a, it was a, you know, the great thing about Fluffy was the bassist, Jeff Beams, is, a foundational like participant in like early early like 1977 like los angeles punk rock that's cool uh, you know he was in a band called the detours which became uh adolescence um i mean just a legend in la punk world and like the sweetest guy and an amazing bass player and he you know we just bowed down to whatever he you know just we just did whatever he'd tell us to do and that's you know all those like riffs are just like natural to him and it was you know, that's awesome like to play that's so that's so cool i love that well let's let's focus on duralex um i you kind of had to change the name obviously for fluffy so i wanted to kind of talk about how uh you know that transition went and and then we can kind of talk about the records that you put out and uh who all was in duralex with you and let's just talk about how that kind of started um the name is the Alex from Flying Tart gave me money to do a Fluffy record. And I went out to, I was living in Nashville at the time doing 
working out of the choir studio, Neverland. Oh, nice. Um, and so he gave me a budget. So I went out to LA and we started uh, a fluffy record with the original lineup. And then we ran out of time. And then we just we we're going to finish it in Nashville. And then somewhere along the way, we were informed that there's a some British girls who wanted to use the name Fluffy. And they gave us $5,000 to stop using the name. And it was like, okay. Sweet. Sweet. The, the name Duralux had kicking around. Um, and that's like from a Kurt Vonnegut novel called Bluebeard. Or okay. it's a, I, you know, I was an art student, like painting and drawing were very important to me in that, you know, but there's no way to make a living doing that. And that book is about a, a abstract expressionist artist who did paintings that were worth millions. And he used a brand of paint called Sateen Duralux. And he did these giant, massive abstract expressionist pieces that were in galleries. And eventually the paint fell off the canvas. So his greatest triumphs were also his greatest failures. Nice. So that checked with me. Yeah. Um, that triumph and the failure, you know, should always be the same thing. And uh, so I, that's why I use the name Duralux. And then through sessions in Nashville, I met a guitar player named Troy Doherty. I think the first thing we did together was a Hoi Polloi album. Oh, yeah. I saw that. New Zealand. Um, and he toured with them for a while, but we just hit it off at sessions and um, started, to, and we got hired to do a few things together. So we started a band. Um, called Duralux and we actually would tour and do shows and um, it was surprising we could you know we did a record the first record Dolorosa at our we, I started a studio in Nashville just as a step to like not do Christian music because mm-hmm. by the early to mid 90s it was just a despicable industry just mm. I mean Especially in Nashville, because it was just that place is a little twisted. Um, yeah. I'm still doing a fair amount of tooth and nail records, you know, like Joe Christmas and Morales Forest and others. But those two stuck out because they're great bands yeah. and luxury. Like I, I was like the uh, I'll do your first record guy. Yeah, I've done a lot of first records, which is always kind of fun to do because you're watching a band discover themselves. Absolutely, how the process of recording uh, happens. And then if you're doing a first record with a band, it's like, it's easy for me to put my sonic fingerprints all over it because sure. I know what I'm doing. And they, they had the songs, but you know, not the pedal sure. or, you know, yeah, how to project down the road on how the record is going to sound when you're, when it's getting mastered, when you're just starting the basic tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's talk about that Dolorosa record <clears throat> that you mentioned. Um, I like it. It's fantastic. Uh, kind of looking back on it, how how do you feel about it? And like you said, you were kind of trying to go a different avenue, I guess, in, in that world. And what was that like for you looking back that, on that record? Those are just the songs that just came to me and Troy. Um, and, you know, half of it we did at our own studio, half of it we did in Chicago with producer named Keith Cleversley who did oh yeah yeah the first few um flaming lips records like hit to death in the future head um, so good. which is a great record and 
you know, that was back before the Flaming Lips became a terrible festival band. <laughs> um, and so we went there because I met him actually when helping Morello's Forest do their second record, which yeah, with Keith. And I met him and we kind of hit it off and he invited us up to record some songs. So we did part of it there. Um, and yeah, that was, that was just kind of what came naturally to Troy and I. And then we toured some, you know, had co-ran the studio in Nashville. And then our studio building was um, owned by some very shady characters. And then the our neighbors became a uh, relaxation center, they called it, but it was a whorehouse that was run. <laughs> and they wanted to take over our space. So they knocked on the door one afternoon and um, said we had three days to get out of our studio space where we were also living. Um, or they were going to come in there and they were going to find drugs and guns. So we decided that would be a great opportunity to uh, move to Athens, Georgia. Because I was already like participating with uh, through the guys in Joe Christmas, which became Summer Hymns. Yeah. And they all like those guys, most of them went to University of Georgia. So they were participating in that whole Athens scenes, like yeah. elephant six adjacent. So we went there because there was a a practical use to have a studio, you know, a studio there that was a bit more than a four track, but not as expensive as Chase Park Transduction, which was the nice studio there. Sure. Um, so we set up shop in Zach Gresham's living room from Wow Summer Hymns, and we did a Summer Hymns record there, uh, Masters of Hemisphere. I did a the Elf Power Winter is Coming album in Zach's living. Um, the Great Lakes, Marshmallow Coast. And then um, that was the late 90s. And then in 2000 is when I got the call that Gene Eugene had passed away. And oh. I was back into the green room in Southern California. And so we relocated the Duralux operation to Southern California and eventually got around to recording the suitcase. Yeah, speaking of the suitcase, uh, just uh, oh, actually, let me back up real quick. You mentioned touring. Who did uh, Durlux tour with? Was there anyone in particular, or was it just on your own? Uh, mostly on our own, like because I met a lot of bands through studio work. Um, we would just they, that created opportunities. But this is pre-internet, um, pre-cell phones, so we had to like you know. We were booking phones, you know, we using a telephone sure. Sure. and all that. So it was just calling up, you know, oh, I recorded a, a, a band called My Little Dog China, which oh, yeah. paved the rocket. And they're from St. Louis. So that was a St. Louis show there. I did a record for Pave the Rocket in Kansas City at the studio run by the guys in Shiner. So that was a Kansas City. I love band. Shiner. Great band. Yeah. Amazing band. And like, you know, through... Tess Wiley from Sixpence and the Richer, oh, brother with Mineral. Yep, like, love Mineral. You know, so I got to record them. Like somewhere in the '90s, I lived in New York for two years doing a lot of TV stuff. Um, like '95 and '96, like I was in New York, uh, 
the first uh, CMJ were that was the uh, Elephant Six first showcase. So cool. Which me and Zachary Gresham were at. Jeez. While tripping, of course. Nutramilk <laughs> so, Hotel, like Olivia Great band. Hotel, which were wow. bands I eventually like would do sound for. Like that's incredible. So you know, it's just this, you know, bumbling through the musical universe. Just I love it, man. It's so cool. You know, nothing is a direct route. Yeah, you know? well, I mean, that's cool, though, that you've got all these memories and stories. Let me ask you, uh, on that, you mentioned Mineral. What did you do for, um, which, did you work on uh, Power of Failing, or did you work on No, I, they, came from, they came to New York for some shows, and the studio I was working at, um, I did a two, three songs for some seven inches. Um, oh, okay totally escaping me the names of the song um and then i did sound for them for a while off i know i know chris chris is awesome yeah he's great i had him on my podcast a while back he's such a sweet guy yeah they're all great guys yeah dude that's awesome i love that man well let's talk about the suitcase record real quick um you know obviously you know, you're writing a new record, and you said the the first record were just kind of songs that came to you. Was there more on this on the suitcase? Was there more of a direction, or were you just kind of going with the flow on this as well? Um, we had been a band for a while and had toured a fair amount, and we'd had a steady lineup for a few years, so it was more cohesive. Uh, just because we had more time together. Sure. And there's a, there's a secret thing to that record because that that that's when I I started working internationally more and more. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, go to Norway for uh, you know a month and record a Serena Manish record and oh he's so good go to Germany and I mean just I started getting dragged around more and more and was like becoming the very decentralized like personally like mm-hmm. just. A, either you know always jetting off elsewhere to do records um and then also trying to resolve i spent three years trying to resolve the green room situation Mm. have everyone finish their records get comfortable with their careers without gene because he was Mm -hmm. a centerpiece to a lot of those bands and that somehow of course was christian rock which i wasn't stoked about but i love so many of those people that i just be sure that they were in a comfortable place to to go forth yeah yeah no that's cool i love that i mean you know i love that you cared so much about the music and the people that you know even if you didn't agree with what it was about or 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 look or you know maybe a difference of opinion it's awesome that you you know it shows your character so i'm trying to say um the fact that you just you know cared so deeply about the music i think that's the one thing about you know watching you from afar it's like everything you've i feel like you've done you you put your best step forward you know and it's always just been something that memorable thanks yeah i mean with anything you once you agree to like the terms you know you settle on the dollar amount it doesn't matter what that is so from that point forward it's like you put your best effort in whether whether and you don't have to care about the music to care about the project sure you know it's like like I loved going to Japan for the first few times and just watching an entire civilization that their religion is doing things well. 
Mm. And Americans don't do that. So, <laughs> it's true, we don't. I mean, we are we are gods of half assery. Yeah. And that's a that's a thing, and that's valid, but just executing well, which is like as a guitar player, you know, I, I'm not a natural shredder. Like, you know, I'm friends with like Jeff Schroeder and Andy Prickett, and it's mm. just like, I I I will never touch their skill set. Sure. You know, Jeff Schroeder is like one of the world's best guitar players. It's incredible. You know, and it's like, but I can learn songs to the point where if I execute them well, it's satisfying, you know, mentally, spiritually, musically. And then people think you're a good guitar player. And so, yeah, you just try and execute well in everything you do. And that is its own reward. Absolutely. And that's also a challenge sometimes, especially when you're like on week five of a fucking John Gibson record. <laughs> okay. You know, Stonehill Children's record where it's just like, oh my, this is a special level of hell, but I, I will do my best to. Uh, that's hysterical. Find a way to make it good. I liked one John Gibson song and I can't tell you what it's called. As it cannot, it was on some sampler. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure you've heard of all. Uh, you know, there's difficult people in every branch of the music industry. I believe it. But the Christian music industry like thrives on difficult people mm. because they're insular, built-in audience. Mm. Um. And you add this like bullshit spirituality of like, I, God speaks through me because I do this music. Mm. No, but, oh God, it's like the arrogance level is like, you think it wouldn't be so overwhelming in the Christian subculture, but, you know, look at pastors and worship leaders. It's like, yeah, they're rock stars, man. It's like, fucking point entirely yeah and you know and you know you wake up every day and lie but that's mm. cool man <laughs> whatever buy, floats your boat buy a con deals <laughs> um so the suitcase comes out uh, how long after the suitcase do you tour that at all um and no, this is like i am don't ever be i i had to stop being in bands because i just too busy. I'm the worst band member in the world. It's I'm a fucking nightmare. I I I guarantee you it's like I want things my way. I'm going to produce the record because I'm not paying anybody to do that shit. Mm -hmm. I can do it myself. It's going to sound the way I want it to sound. The mixes are going to be how I want them to mix. I'm not going to show up to rehearsal and then it's just like I'm going to like be super flaky because I'll make more money doing sound on someone else's tour than I will oh. like, hang in front of 200 people. And oh, you're right. It's like, do I want to be like, yeah, go on tour with the Walkman and Kings of Leon and make Way money. a month again? <laughs> yeah. Or, like maybe afford to get to the point on a Duralux tour where we can go into Taco Bell and like, all right, lads, you can get, Two items on the 99 cent menu today. <laughs> You're a wise man. You're a yeah. wise man. <laughs> um, 
so yeah, by the time I got to the suitcase, uh, Troy and his and and um, Megan, who are band members, and a couple, they hated it there. Mm. They, they just weren't feeling Los, you know, Long Beach. Um, our drummer like embraced it to the point where he was just became Los Angeles, and that was great. <laughs> and didn't and he wanted to like pursue his writing career, which is the right choice. Yeah. And uh, and oh three, it's like the green room done, sold, case closed. Everyone, you know, Andy Prickett became the engineer for everybody, and he is was fantastic. I wish Mom, he was still he's amazing. And um, and then you know, I was touring with you know bands I'd help you know record were doing great things like the band Esther Drang. I did their first record, The Green Room. Right. And everyone in that band was like a great musician. And the drummer, he got hired by Sufjan Stevens. And that's how I got sucked in the Sufjan tour world for a while for Michigan, Illinois, and the BQE projects. Wow. Where it turned into like Sufjan 17 piece band, a full orchestra dancer. And me at the front of house just thinking what the fuck am i doing here this is too much you know this is nothing to do with punk rock yeah um, but it was epic and then like after like the illinois slash bke like orchestral era once we finished those tours i just told sufian i'm like i thank you so much for all this experience but can i please be done with you wow. he's wow. just like bro like the next thing i do is going to be like not this and not you know and then he did uh age of ads and i had nothing with that's that the tour i saw him on <laughs> yeah um and then also i was splitting my time because somewhere along the way i was uh in a van with esther drang doing shows with pedro the lion who did a show with a band called early mart who needed oh, yeah. down guy for a tour because they're opening up for this band I liked because of a Saturn commercial called The Walkman. Oh yeah, great band. And then um, showed up for the first day of the Walkman tour and they, on the way to the first show, they fired their sound guy. They just set him off, set him out of the van. Just, you gotta get out of the van. We, we This isn't gonna work. And so I started mixing them and that lasted for 10 years. I think I saw them with uh, Fleet Foxes. Yeah, and, I did. And, yeah, in Jacksonville, Florida. That's where I, I was at. You okay. were probably in the same place, and I would have if yep. I had known it. I said, hey. It was the Walkman. I was their sound guy. The 90, uh, other than I'd skip out every now and again, because Sufjan paid better. Um, yeah, I, I mixed every Walkman show, like Amazing. except for maybe 5% of them, because I was busy with Suf. <sighs> Man. And then that's like, you know, and then the Dur Troy took Durlux back to Nashville and did stuff. And I just got sucked into a vortex of, uh, um, but also at the green room in 2000 is where I met Richard Swift. Yes. Yes. And, on, you know, I met him at Gene Eugene's funeral. And then there are some sessions booked that I, I picked up because, you know, finish everyone's record. And then 
I found myself in a room with Richard Swift, Frank Lance, and Eli Thompson. Man. It was like, uh, we could do this from now on and forever. Sweet. And, you know, so I, you know, the first Richard Swift record, you know, was pretty much just Richard, Frank Lanz and myself. And amazing. That was also very much like defining because I'm in the studio right now that Swift and I, you know, founded Beautiful. 18 years ago. That's so cool, man. But I worked on every one of the Richard Swift records except for the novelist. He did that by himself. And That's awesome. It's cute to me when people call and they want me, someone, they call because of the studio. Are they maybe read credits? I don't know. It's confusing if people read credits and they're like, do you know, you know, you know, you work at the studio. Do you know how to like, if you're to mix my record, can you get that Richard Swift sound? It's just like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can. <laughs> and three people on the planet four that can do the Richard Swift sound because it was really Frank Lenz, Eli Thompson, Richard Swift, and myself that we did that. It's amazing. It kind of became a kind of a, a semi-genre, which it's so cool. Uh, man. It's adorable. It's that's awesome, man. How do you feel about having kind of made your mark in that world? Uh just in terms of, of what you just said, that that sound. It's the way I like records to sound. I mean, there's not. I mean, there's like, if you listen to like the star, the yeah, the Starflyer record, uh, "Leave Here, Stranger," which I mixed. Great record, great record. Uh, which there is no stereo version. It's one of those records I will argue about online when people say, "Oh, there's these mystery stereo mixes out there." Look, assholes, there is. <laughs> There's not. They don't exist. Stop blind. I, I love that. I did that. It's incredible. Motto. Holy motto. That record's amazing. Um, are that are like the the Lassie Foundation records? Mm, um, so good. To me, though, to me, it's just like there's definitely a connection between that sound and the Richard Swift sound. The big reverb. Absolutely. You no, know, it my same space echo tape delay is is you know eight feet away from me. That's on all of those. That's so cool. You know? Well, let me ask you this real quick. I, I want to kind of get into some of the your favorite records you've worked on, but I wanted to kind of talk briefly about uh, your time in the supergroup Kush. Um, yeah. Loved everything they ever put out. Just think, uh, just curious, uh, your thoughts on, on that time uh, when you were kind of in the band and out of the band and working with the band? No, in or out of the band, like I. After Gene passed, I just all of a sudden was mixing the 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 one that Michael Knott sang on. Yeah. Um, and I was like, wow, this is great. And then uh, the EPs, I get confused, to be honest. I don't, I'm utterly lacking in nostalgia in a lot of ways. It used to be like in the 1800s, nostalgia was considered a uh, disorder. <laughs> I have um, a disorder then. <laughs> yeah. So I'm a little bit lacking that. And I, so I, and I was, me and Swift were also participants in a charity Impressa. Yes. yes. And to be honest, I don't know the difference. Mm. I was on, I couldn't 
tell one from the other at the time because um, I was doing both of them when we could, as we could. Because um, anytime I could be in a room with like Eric Camposano, I'm going to say yes. Yeah, he's great. Um, but what was Kush and what was Charity Impressa? I don't fucking know. <laughs> I love that. You know, I mean, it's like in Charity Impressa shows were just like some of my favorite things because it's like we're playing poker on stage, you know, or Wayne and someone's playing cards on stage while I'm like lying on the floor with a Cassia SK1 and Swift has a chaos pad and that's the show and people are mad. Like, well, that takes me right back to like Buffy taking shrooms and opening for the crucified. You just are, you're a, um, you're a, you, you like to poke the bear, it sounds like, which is, is okay. It's like there's a secret art school me, um, that didn't really get developed enough of performance art. Um, so yeah, well, I I think uh, I think that's what makes you special. I think you're the type. I mean, there's a reason that you are in the position, and you um, not only the talent, but you just have the the moxie and, and and the you know the ability to to be you know to poke the bear, poke the bear when you want to poke the bear. You know, what, I think that's cool. What is the difference between arrogance and confidence? You know, I've never been asked that, but probably. Yeah, I mean, I'm a confident guy, so I get it. I don't, I don't feel like I'm arrogant. Arrogant. I mean, who's to I say? Have, I guess I check myself with that question. And having dealt with a lot of really big rock stars, sure. I. That, that's you know. I want to ask the, all of them that question. Like, what's the difference between arrogance and confidence? It's a it's a very tough question, but and but you're right though. I mean, there's I guess there's just that line, uh, uh, the metaphoric line. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I I definitely get what you're saying for sure. But answer the question. I think the difference, personally, for me, is when I say something confidently. And I know what I know, or I feel like I know what I know, and I don't. Then I don't. I don't have to ever have to doubt it. I think arrogance. There's some doubt there. Is my guess. So arrogant. So confidence is a foundation in your knowledge, and arrogance is projecting things you might know. That's. I mean, uh, there's got to be a portion of that. That's true. But I mean, maybe there is. I mean, there's people that are good at what they do, and they're arrogant. I mean, you know, I just. That's such a tough question. You're putting me on the spot, Chris. <laughs> well, I don't think you're arrogant. Why I don't think I you're... Have to ask the questions? <laughs> Who's to say, Chris? Who's to say? Well, let's, let me ask you this. I want to kind of go, I, I know you kind of mentioned some of the records and, and, and the green room and all that. I just want to know some of your favorite records that you've kind of worked on in the past. Um, and, I, I, you know, I don't want if people listen to this that might have played on some records. I don't want them to, you know, you think you're, you know, singling, you know, particular ones up. I'm just curious, some of the ones that you are just maybe most proud of or more more so most uh, just, you know, jog that memory that, that you like to look back the on. Ones, like, take the time to pull out of the sleeves and put on the turntable. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, 
Pacifico by the Lassie Foundation. Great, great record. Um, every now and again, I, I, I look at like, and this is like being genre specific to Christian alt rock. I, I, in my mind, which is once again arrogance, I look at uh, the luxury, amazing, and thank you. Great record. Joe Christmas. Uh, Upstairs, the first world. Upstairs, overlooking. Yeah, and um, the first world is forest. In my mind, those are a close set that yeah. I have great affinity for, and I those bands are only connected just through playing the same shows occasionally. Other than the fact that me and Steve Hindelong made those records, but I those three records to me are a, a set and. I, I really do like those. Yes. I know the great. band has done better. They've written better songs down the road. They all developed and they're all first records for all three of those bands. But I don't know. In my mind, that that those three are a concise statement. And I don't know why. Yeah. Um, I, I love those Swift records. You know, Great records. Uh. An odd one, which I don't think anyone heard, was Pave the Rocket. Um, they did one record that I've actually produced and paid for. And, you know, got they got the old indie label fuckaroo. Mm. Um, it's a great record, post-hardcore kind of thing. What's it called? <sighs> I want to listen to it because I didn't know about it. It's the only one they made. Oh, okay. Hold on, I'll see if it's home. Yeah, I can. Is it taken in? Taken in? Taken in? Okay. Yeah. That's a solid record. All right, I'll listen to that. You know, the bits and bobs I did with the Walkman here and there, kind of fun. That's awesome. What, um, was there any, I don't want you to name ones that you hated, but was there some that you, I mean, you mentioned one earlier in particular. Um, Were there some that, you know, that you just uh, have, you know, just think about and you're like, man, why, why was I here? Or why, you know, kind of maybe just throw your thoughts on that. Um, I was pretty fortunate to not really ever have to do too much stuff I didn't like. Um. I mean, other than like a few things where like I get called in to do stuff at the green room when Gene would have three students, he would book himself in three different studios and then have me and, you know, Andy Prickett, like yeah. and the other, he would, you know, we'd be circling around, you know, like factory work. Sure. Um, and then, you know, a, a mutual like go fuck yourself from a band called Christ Afari, <laughs> Christian. <laughs> Reggae? Reggae. But, oh, they were just the worst human beings. Wow. Uh, and that, that's just a genre that, that shouldn't be. You can't. <laughs> Reggae. It's the cultural appropriation was. Rampant. Um, and I've done a few, like, mega church pastors, kids, like, vanity records that I'm people I can't even remember. That were just like, oh, you suck. 
but you're hiring all these great people because your daddy takes 10% of old people's mm. and you're, you came here in an $80,000 car mm. that is just from the mega church. Like, yeah. fuck, go fuck yourself. Yeah. Like, how can you do that? Yeah. Thanks for the money. <laughs> but thanks, I, for, I've been thanks for playing. Those. I've been fired from some past some PKs and as oh. I just snap and I just you know, oh sorry we're late. We had to go to the Armani store and buy this and I'm just like Jeez. I gotta be done here. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall for sure. Yeah, I I, I have some self editing issues. <laughs> I love that. I love that. Um, you mentioned the green room, green room a lot. Um, maybe some uh, a, th- a thought or two, kind of looking back on that. Um, you know, just overall, I know it's a, a legendary place for a lot of the artists and and a lot of uh, fans who've who've listened to a lot of the records. Just kind of your thoughts on, on that time uh, at the green room. Oh, it was fantastic. I mean, the the studio itself was just like, I mean, it was called Studio B before it was the green room because it was just in the olden times in Los Angeles, Orange County studio hierarchy, you had your fancy studios, you know, your sunset sound capital, your A rooms that were really expensive. And you go there and you do your big tracking with drums or your orchestra or, you know, studios that would be thousands of dollars a day, but then all over Southern California would be what they called overdub room b rooms mm-hmm. and uh the green room was built out for i think maranatha music in the 70s to be oh. a b room so the gear was just as bare bones as you could possibly get and then when gene eugene and his partner business partner Anna cardenas uh bought it somehow um the gear didn't change it was still just as bare bones like you know it not uh, at the time like one of the cheaper mixing consoles you can get but it did sound good the cheapest tape machine you can get minimal gear um but you know with minimal gear if you apply great talent you get sure i love that though that's amazing that's cool gene was also like a great hustler um and his you know personality wise he just charmed everybody to like you know, and plus he was involved with that label he had with Ojo Taylor. You know, he had a, a lot of hustles going on. And so he would, it would be super fun. It's like he would call me from wherever I was at, you know, New York, Nashville, Athens to come in for a week or two and help him get caught up on recording whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, bouncing between three different rooms and always winding up to the green room and, you know hanging out with him at night and then the way Anna had the studio laid out in the lounges which were just she was a master mistress of vibe just yeah and very influential on why national freedom is like very vibey you know it, it instills confidence and comfort in the performers to have a not a sterile environment you know, like the, the big fancy rooms, which are bright, clean, shiny, sterile. That's intimidating for everybody. 
Sure. But if you're in someone's living room, you know. Comfort. Yeah, comfort. And then yeah. also keep it cheap, you know. I sell my time. I try to make my time affordable. And that's why I'm in Cottage Grove, Oregon, is because it's so low overhead. I can be very generous with my time and charge less because I don't have to pay. Like the overhead I would pay in Los Angeles for this space would be like $10,000 a month. Crazy. You know, and it is definitely not that here. <laughs> you know, I'm in a barn in someone's backyard. Not my backyard, someone's backyard. Yeah, that's in cool. Former Swift residence. That's awesome. Right. Well, let me ask you, I know you kind of mentioned some of the bands <clears throat> that you've went out with, uh, front of house-wise, or mixing and, and whatnot. And you mentioned the Walkman, Leon Bridges, um, Sufjan, Pedro. Uh, you also worked with Mazzy Star. Who, what's, what are some other artists that you've kind of worked with uh, i've just been curious um i mean the walkman was 10 years pretty much and then sufjan and mazzy star thing was for their reunion original lineup tour in 2013 um and you live next to her right what's that and you lived like a mile from her right yeah i grew up in east l.a uh, like she did. As it turns out, we grew up one mile apart where she's one month older than me. Crazy. Um, and her cousins and some of my cousins' boyfriends like actually knew each other. So it was like... Small world. Small world and like, you know, she has some diva-esque attributes that I could just be like, look, Chica, no. <laughs> no, 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 no it's like that don't work with me and like that helped like we were just she's a i'm actually a fairly shy person she's an extremely shy person um but we got along great the rest of the band was a trip yeah um, but my god what a talent she yes. never made she, she, she never what flawless musician oh man that's amazing just like that flat no vibrato voice that tambourine the band was so scared and so timid. There'd be like, we'd be in like the Warfield Theater, like 4,000 people or whatever. And they're so timid and it's so quiet and so dark that in the middle of songs, sometimes there'd be no one playing. It'd just be utter silence. And the tension was great, but mm -hmm. it'd just be like so timid and so quiet. And it would just devolve from fear into like nothingness. And then she'd swing that tambourine on her hip. And it's just like, you know, everyone would like, then the song would rediscover itself. Wow. That's magic. That sounds amazing. But she's difficult. <laughs> um, and then she, her management asked me if I wanted to do like her solo tours, and I was absolutely not. <laughs> what's, a, what, what's some of the other uh, bands? You, you said obviously Walkman 10 years, and uh, you was it Le you did it with Leon Bridges for a little bit, correct? I was with Leon Bridges for his first five years. Uh, in between the Walkman and Leon, it was Mazzy Star. And then I did some time with Clap Your Hands, Say Yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember that, man. Which was fun. Uh, I know I'm forgetting stuff. I mean, a couple... Starflyer? I was just starting to pick up shows with Elliot Smith. Wow. That didn't work out um, at all. <laughs> um, 
she and him at Matt War M War. Wow. Uh, so like yeah. Rolling with Zoe D Chanel for a minute was hilarious. That woman is insanely funny. That's awesome. Yeah. She's really fun. But then like yeah, I uh the Walkman's management company, uh after the Walkman went on hiatus and I was skipping about and mostly like starting to do more studio stuff. Um, Cause in between all these tours, like I was, you know, helping Swift with records. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, maintaining the studio, doing all the tech work, doing, you know, I, and I discovered mastering fit in well with in between tours because mastering only takes a couple days, not weeks. Like sure. Record. Um, and then the, Walker's management is like, we have a project we'd like you to do. We're going to send you two singles. And if you like it, you know, call me back there. You know, here's a Dropbox link. And it was the first two. Uh, it was Leon Bridges uh, coming home and Lisa Sawyer. And so I listened to those two songs. So exactly seven minutes later, I called him back. And I'm just like, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, we don't think we'll be he'll be in a van for very long. And. So we did like a week of shows before he went to South by Southwest. And that's when I learned you can win South by Southwest. That's amazing. You can actually win it. You can win an award. We got all got like $1,500 each for winning South by Southwest. And that year it was Leon for best new American artist and Courtney Barnett for best international artist. Wow. Um, and it was just such a calamity wherever we went. Because we did like nine shows in four days or something silly like that. And we had expectations that people would want to pay attention, but we didn't think, you know, 5,000 people would show up to a 200. So I, I had the Austin Fire Marshal's phone number in my phone for the week. I had to tell him where we were going to be. Mm. But he can like have the fire department and the police there to mitigate the debacle we're creating. Holy cow. And then yeah, uh, we it just blew up. It was amazing. I went around the world with that guy like so many times so fast in five years. Um and then the last summer I was with them, we did like 37 festivals in one summer. Holy crap. And like three or four weeks in South America with Harry Styles. Oh my gosh. And, you know, so we're in arena sized rooms where there's like 50, 60, 70,000 people. Oh and God. I'm, you know, the dude from Fluffy at the front of the house. And I'm, <laughs> uh, I, this is, this is once again, this is a clerical error. Someone, a grown up needs to show up and like take over because this is not comfortable. Do you ever get nervous when you're doing that? I mean, I know oh you've probably God. done it a million times. When you have no sound check, no line check, there's a hundred thousand people waiting for Leon Bridges to walk out on stage, and you do not know what's going to come out of those speakers. Mm. No idea. Throw it. It's called throw and go. You load in your file. You hope the little lights on the meters are twinkling. So you know all your microphones are working. All you really care about is whether the kick drum and the lead vocal mic work, but you can't check them because it's a festival and there's other shit going on. 
Absolutely. And, you know, during the day you have to like set up and, you know, stops and starts while other bands set up and it's chaotic and you're outside all day. And I'm one of those people, I'm an indoor cat outside sucks. Yeah. And then there's just like, I do what I call the death march out to the front of house in the middle of a field where there's like a hundred thousand people or whatever. And then there's that wait of just like that last five minutes where you can do nothing but wait and it goes on forever. And <laughs> like you can smoke a lot of fucking cigarettes in five minutes. I believe it. Um, back when I used to smoke and God, I missed smoking when I didn't because it's just like that, that, and that, full-on panic attack of like what is going to happen because when things don't go well it's yeah. like that's the sound guy's fault when it goes great no one notices you yep yep you know it's kind of a brutal life and then you it, know you're bus you know sleeping in a box but yeah, yeah that is just if you want ptsd <laughs> go on with like a band that that you know does a lot of festivals yeah it's, that sounds like it that sounds like a nightmare i mean it's easier with the walkman because they didn't care it's like things can just run off the rails and as long as they get the check they were gold yeah you know they 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 they're friends with failure you know yeah. not friends, but they're familiar with failure technically because they don't want to they don't want to sound check they don't want to set up you know they just they just want the check. So that was easy. That was fine. I, that's a policy that I, I could live with. Yeah. Uh, Sufjan didn't do festivals because there's no way he could. And yeah. wise to always pass because there's just, just impossible. But yeah, with Leon, it was like the pressure was on. And after like the hairstyles and like it was going to be arenas. Uh and I'd like dislocated my knee so many times on tour, I decided it was time to stop and do something about that. And I got really tired of saying no to studio work. Yeah. I got pass on mastering and mixing records because I was gone all the time and I was in my 50s. So the last show of his 2018 summer tour was at Red Rocks. Wow. And I'm just like, that's the one. I could be done here. And it was recorded and filmed like for Sony and I got to mix that. So that was like, not only did I get to mix my last show for Leon, my last show period was at Red Rocks. It, it was also like well-documented, which is kind of fun. That's amazing. I love hearing that, man. These stories are so cool, dude. I, and it just, uh, man, what a, just a, what a blessing to have all these opportunities. That's so cool. Just falling. Yeah. Just bumbling. I'm, I am just a bumbling old man. I've been a bumbling old man my entire life. And I just, it's just all this. It's yeah. It, it takes a willingness to step off a cliff. It's like, especially here in a small town, I meet musicians who are competent songwriters who are just like, and when they're drunk, they're like, it's not fair. You and Richard get to go do all this stuff and I'm here with my wife and kids. And I'm just like, he didn't step off a fucking cliff, moron. Yeah. You want to succeed in music, it's just like get in a van and make no money for at least two years. Yeah. You know, it's all risk and it's like and shit eating. But 
it's also equal parts beauty and horror. If you take the big risk and you eat a lot of shit, you get to do amazing things. Yeah. You know, it's very it's true. Like, I was a weird little dude from like Pico Rivera. It's like, why am I in Istanbul mixing the Walkman right now? You know, amazing, man. Yeah. I love that, dude. I love power, that. Like in a suburban going 100 miles an hour through Jericho, you know? It's crazy. That's so cool, dude. Well, let's talk about uh, National Freedom Studio. I know you kind of mentioned it earlier and <clears throat> that you and Richard Swift put that together. And I know you, you said you just worked on a record recently. How, how's, how's the studio going? You obviously sound like you're staying pretty busy. And, and I kind of, you know, just maybe mention that. And is there what's the website? I'm just curious if people want to kind of look uh, into it. National Freedom or National Freedom Studio is uh, the Instagram or my or Christopher Colbert Instagram is like how people usually find me. The website, it exists. Um, I, I'm not the one who checks it. My associate does, and but stuff gets to me. Um, yeah, the studio is, I cannot believe how well it's going. It's amazing. Um, yeah, most of the time it's mastering. Um, and thank God for low overhead because during the pandemic when no one could tour or go to studios, all the old material that was unreleased that people didn't like, they learned to love it and mm. needed to master it for the pandemic. And so I was doing a lot of, you know, pay me later stuff, discount stuff, free stuff, whatever it took to get people through. Sure. Um, but yeah, mastering's like the day job part of it and then mixing. And then, but yeah, it's like, it's a full functioning recording studio. We, I, we have bands that come in like, enough to like justify the microphone collection awesome. um yeah and you know plus it's like we're i'm very lucky the swift family wanted out of the studio business they didn't want ownership um and the person who bought the property had the means to do so because i didn't um but i get to like you know i, I just rent the space and it's just i'm just delighted that it's just a enough people love the space and the vibe is still here and the insiders know who did what yeah on the records you know the general public you know the the brand was richard swift we agreed on that that made sense it's like it's easier to sell one thing you know one thing richard swift plus he wrote those songs and he co-wrote all those songs with like shins and black keys and pretenders that like you know, he, you know, he, he worked really hard for those gold records, you know, yeah. and I worked really hard creating the environment for that to take place. And then he and I collaborated on those records, you know, in some capacity, you know, the ones I didn't record, Eli Thompson recorded the ones, you know, or, you know, sure. that are little core Richard Swift cult and it went great for a long time until it didn't mm. but still being able to do it now in the same space with the same vibe you know upgraded gear and it's a lot you know more tidy now um no I'm just stoked that it still functions and you know bring it on people it's like <laughs> you know I haven't forgotten how to record I love that man I love that man I just the fact that you still get to do, like I've mentioned earlier, still get to do what you love. Um, oh my God. 
I'm working like with like people in their 20s. That's amazing. I get older, but they stay the same, you know? That's so cool. It's like, it's, it's amazing to me that like, yeah, kids in their 20s, like come to me to finish their records. Um, I, I think that'll stave off dementia for a little while longer, kind of somehow managing to have a tiny little sliver of cultural relevance. Yeah. How fortunate. That's so cool, dude. Chris, this has been so cool, man. I really appreciate you coming on and telling me these amazing stories and just the, Old it, <laughs> just behind the curtain a little been an awesome conversation and i'm just really honored that you'd come on and, and talk to me and i mean i really appreciate you being so willing and kind so this is this a is this a, a therapy session that we <laughs> yes i'm trying to get over being arrogant and more confident <laughs> good awesome man well i or will wait, tell you that's also valid yeah <laughs> could be awesome dude well hopefully we'll get to meet in person sometime that would be incredible i would love to do that we're right on I-5. Stop by anytime. All right, brother. I will Great. talk to you soon. All right. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you to the listener for tuning in again and again. I really appreciate it been amazing uh the support so i really deeply appreciate you guys listening liking subscribing sending sharing clicking whatever you want to call it thank you so much they get a chris colbert so honored to have you on uh amazing conversations thank you so much for your time i really appreciate it and uh hope to, to hang out sometime in the future so thank you again chris got some incredible artists on the horizon and you know guys nostalgia is still a hell of a drug Thank you.